I'm pretty sure that by the end of our sixth meeting, we will get to the end of Second Timothy, because the most crucial matter of all the matters will be in that sixth session. Uh, we have to work our way up to that peak. I thank the Lord for the fellowship we had in the first session. Some of the points that were quite outstanding were the matters of the will of God, uh, how to reconcile God's sovereignty with him and freedom. Uh, I don't know. I know God is sovereign, and we have some measure of freedom uh, within the environment that is not under our control. And we need to exercise our will to choose God's will and pray that what he intends for us will be fulfilled. A very helpful prayer that I learned uh, is to pray, Father, what is in your heart concerning me? Father, I pray that whatever is in your heart concerning me will be fulfilled. And then you can fill in any details, whatever is in your heart concerning my family, concerning marriage. Surely it matters to you concerning me. Peter says that. It matters to him concerning you. Whom I marry, uh, what I study, where I live, whether or not I go to the training, uh, that matters to you. What is in your heart concerning me? And I pray that what is in your heart will get into my heart and that the desire of your heart will become the desire of my heart. Uh, talking about stories, I'll tell you what happened in, in March of 1963 when I was meeting Susan. It was love at second sight. <laughs> You know, the, the first sight, the first contact uh, didn't work out so well. But then we happened to be together in this underground prayer meeting that we were having. Uh, this is in, at, at Princeton Seminary. And then on this Saturday night, during this boring speech by one of the theologians there, long, not only boring, but long. <laughs> and she's at a table, and I had to be... Uh, at the front table, the speaker's table, for a certain reason. And eventually there was this triangular transmission going on involving God in the heavens and Susan at the table and me at the table. It was just going like this. <laughs> and I realized, and she realized then, I'm, I'm going to marry this person. That was March 3rd, 1963, I expected we'll get married probably June of 1964. I need to finish my degree first. But we got married July 30th, 1966. And in between March 3rd of 63 and July 30th of 66, I learned that God has not only a will, he also has a way to fulfill his will, and he has a time. So if you want to really be radical in becoming a Timothy, you might, and I highly recommend that you do, you might pray, Lord, I want to do your will. 
in your way and at your time. Timing means a lot with God. And the Lord's life was governed by this. He, he knew his time has not come. You can't touch me. They wanted to throw him off the cliff in Nazareth. He just walked through the crowd. He knew this is not the time. I'm not going to die in this way. But when his time was ready, he just made a beeline for Jerusalem without fear. So timing means a lot to God. Actually, he has a schedule of timing for human history. And we live within time, and God's timing is very important. Regarding God's time, I don't know about you. Well, actually, I, I do know about you, because I know about me, and we're the same regardless of the temporary uh, difference in age and experience. Regarding God's timing, I only make two mistakes. I'm either ahead or behind. <laughs> Other than that, I'm okay. And God's way. You know, we may know God's will, and then we just charge off. Now we know God's will, and then we, we just do some really, uh, well, what, kind of strange things. But if we would just say, Lord, I want your will and your way and your time, okay, uh, it, it'll kill you. It, it'll kill you. There's no doubt about it, because be, the will of God will be a cross then his way will be a cross, and his timing will be a cross. Uh, and I'm giving a kind of human illustration that uh, uh, well, this happened more than once, but I know one brother, he comes to the full-time training, signs the consecration agreement, signs number seven. I'm not engaged, I'm not involved in anybody. I give myself to not pursue, not to develop a relationship of this sort while I'm in the training, including the breaks. And then he has a dream at night that he will marry a certain sister. And then the Lord uses his dream to, to beget a love in him, and he's in his first term. Well, I sometimes tell the saints the only thing harder than not knowing is knowing. <laughs> you think not knowing is hard, try knowing. And then the Lord uses this to open him up and say, well, this is what I want. Uh, it's not now. You're in the training. She's in the training. She's a year ahead of you. And, and so, the, actually, this is my very own son happened to. I found this out later. And <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't in the training at the time, but he went to one of the trainers and opened himself up and, and told him the situation and got some, got some shepherding and got some supply. So God does, he, certain things you think for sure he will do, he doesn't. Certain things you never thought he would do, he does. Um, but that's just another reason why I love him so much. He's so wonderful, and a life with him is really, um, among other things, an adventure. So I'm glad we touched on this, on the will of God, then the matter of the pure conscience. And it's not a matter of you're trying to make yourself a better person. It's letting God's life save you and flow in you. Okay, we all got mixed motives. None of us is naturally pure. 
but let God's life flow in you. It, that is a pure life. It's going to make you pure. In the new Jerusalem, you're going to be transparent gold. You're going to be crystal clear. So don't, don't believe in the tempor temporary situation. But God really does need some pure people who really want his will for his glory. Then we need to fan into flame the gift of God. We may not know what it is, but we have something in us imparted by God. And the real enemy is passivity. To be passive is to be in death. Some of us are born aggressive. Some of us are born passive. And uh, those that are aggressive, they may seem to have an advantage, but God will deal with them. They're the Peters. They will go fishing. They will do all kinds of things. God will deal with them. But for everyone who's aggressive, there may be eight or ten who are kind of inward, reflective, contemplative, sensitive, introspective, shy, and all of this. Plus, they're passive. And that is not a very good situation to be in. So God has to do things in your environment to wake you up and to cause you to fan the flame of the gift of God that's in you. Then you realize God has given us a spirit of power, of love, and of sober-mindedness. He doesn't just give it. It doesn't just plunk down in our being. He comes into us, mingles his spirit with our spirit, then he spreads. This spreading is through the growth in life. As he spreads, then he adjusts uh, the kind of uh, wacky parts of our being and balances us. If our will is too weak, some, sorry to say, they were improperly trained as children. And they were not trained to make choices. Uh, always their will was overridden by somebody. And that's not a healthy development. A human being should be trained to make responsible choices. And, you know, we can't re replay our life, but however, whatever the state of our will is, the Lord will renew it. So our will is strong. Once God makes his will known and we choose it, the enemy realizes you'll, ne you'll never shake us. You'll never shake us. This is a matter of will. And there's a principle in this universe that both God and the devil must and do respect the human will. And so the Lord will work in us to give us a spirit of power through our will and a spirit of love. Of the three aspects, love, power, and sober-mindedness, surely the love is preeminent. But it can't be a love without discernment, without wisdom. This doesn't mean you become cold. But, you know, Peter, I'm using, I'm sewing for the future. Peter, in chapter 3, talks about husbands. He doesn't, he doesn't tell them to love their wives. He says you have to live with them according to knowledge giving more honor to them, or giving honor to them as to the weaker vessel. He doesn't say weak vessel. That implies you're strong, she's weak. It's weak-er. It's a matter of two letters. In other words, you're weak, she's weaker. But husbands, you are not very bright. 
You don't understand the marriage relationship, neither do you understand the female vessel. When she is weaker, you dishonor her. But that is precisely at the point she needs more honor from you. When she is least worthy of it, that is when she needs it. But you may be frightened or bothered or shocked or angered by the temporary insanity that is being exhibited by the weaker vessel. And, and so even you try to love and you do all these things by love and then it backfires on you. The flowers don't work. Not, not, nothing works because your love is without a sober mind. You don't have any understanding. But eventually, when there's a spirit of love <coughs> and the sober-mindedness, then there's the spiritual understanding. And none of us has this by our natural birth, so we're all starting essentially from the same place, from zero. And we're becoming something in Christ that we could never be in ourselves through the Lord's organic salvation. And then we'll have a genuine faith that doesn't pretend to be what it's not. So let's go on in our reading and, and see uh, what we can do in the next hour or so. Verse 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but suffer evil with the gospel according to the power of God. Uh, if you found out that I was a prisoner in, in Kabul or in Istanbul, uh, this may be quite a test for you. Oh, to be one with the brothers when things are glorious. This is now the, you know, this kind of happy time. I'm, I'm just a Timothy. But now your, your, your brother is in prison. Uh, he's on the most wanted list. He's seemingly put to shame. Are you going to be, are you going to identify yourself with him? Brother, Brother Lee told us what the communist strategy was when they were zeroing in on the churches in the early 50s. They had a meeting, the church in Shanghai. And they told the saints, you know, we do not oppose God or Christ. You want to believe in God and Christ, it's okay. It's this man, Watchman Nee that we have a problem with. And then he gave this speech, and then the spokesperson went out and let the saints discuss. And some of them fell for it. They say, it's, it's not a matter of, we, don't have to, we can't believe in God or in Christ. It's Brother Nee. Then some, under weakness, would then renounce. I, I, I don't know him. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not part of whatever he does. I'm just a believer here. Well, this may seem, what are you talking about? You're just following a man? No, you're not just following a man. The Lord has uh, representatives in his work and ministry on the earth, and it matters whether or not you are in coordination with them and not ashamed to uh, be identified with them. It doesn't mean you are a party with them. I'm not a Leite. You know, we're, we're not forming a party like this. But I remember in 1974, uh, in the fall, I had been in, 
impressed with this verse in Psalm 69 that prophesies of the Lord Jesus, the reproaches of them who reproached you, meaning God, fell on me. The Lord was on the earth. He was one with God. The world reproaches God. He is unashamedly standing with God the Father, and so the reproaches directed at God fell on him. And some of us were invited to a certain Bible study by a group in Fullerton, so we went. And the leaders were suspicious of us, and so they came up to us in a confrontational way after the meeting, and they wanted to know who we were and where we were from. And, and so we answered, and I said that... Uh, Ron Kangas, and I'm with the church in Anaheim. And, oh, right away, Witness Lee, Witness Lee. And this fellow said, you know, Witness Lee has false teachings. I said, oh? And now there's a circle there, and the brother's wife is there. So I said to him, what are they? Specify the false teachings. And he, he didn't say anything, he couldn't say anything. So I said to him, either specify the false teachings or withdraw the accusation. And he wouldn't do that either. And they just had a little taste, of just bearing a little reproach for just standing with the Lord's ministry. It's not in a natural way. Witness Lee is my leader and I follow him in this kind of sectarian way. But the fact is that he was bearing the ministry of the age and he is the servant of the Lord and we're not ashamed of him. This is what Paul told Timothy. This is not a happy time. I'm a prisoner in Rome. Later in the chapter, a faithful brother Onesimus, he came to Rome to seek him out. Do you think this was done without a risk? I don't know if you've ever been to Rome before. And, and, and can, can I find Saul of Tarsus? Can I find Paul? Well, well I heard he, where, where is he? Is he at the Motel 6? No, I heard, well, I understand he's in prison. You go to identify yourself with the imprisoned apostle? This is to offer some personal risk. There will be times where you'll be put on the test you're with the church in Berkeley? You're with the Lord's recovery? Yes, I am. Uh, you, you call us what you will. I'm not ashamed to identify myself with the Lord's recovery today and with this ministry today. Then he said, but suffer evil with the gospel according to the power of God. And so there's going to be a time where Timothy has to suffer some evil. Then verse 9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Here we see that God's salvation and calling are not focused on us, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the times of the ages. Okay, why did God save you? Was it just because he had pity on you you were a hell-bound sinner, and he didn't want you to perish, so he saved you so that for eternity you could be with him. Is this kind of salvation worthy of our wise God with his purpose? It says here, you were saved according to his own purpose. 
you were saved for God's purpose. And I'm very thankful for footnotes. So let me read part of footnote two on this verse. God's purpose is his plan according to his will to put us into Christ and make us one with him to share his life and position that we may be his testimony. So salvation is not all about you. It's all about God's purpose. And you were saved because God has a purpose. And you were saved that you would be brought into line with that purpose and that your life would make a contribution to that. This is not a small thing. Even in spiritual matters, even in the matters, matter of salvation, we can be, be just so centered on ourselves. But God has a purpose. The whole human race fell away from him but he saved his chosen ones for the carrying out of his purpose. And that was according to the grace given us in Christ before the times of the ages, but now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who nullified death and brought life and incorruption to light through the gospel. This we believe. Death has been nullified. When do we declare this? We declare this in the face of death itself. We declare this at funeral meetings. We declare this at memorial meetings. We declare this with a broken heart because we grieve because we're human. But we don't grieve like unbelievers grieve. You read 1 Timothy 4, Paul is fellowshipping. He said that you would not grieve as others who have no hope. If we don't grieve, we're not human. How can we not cry? How can we not seek the Lord desperately? We're human. But we don't grieve like unbelievers grieve. We're believers even in our grief. Because there's a hope at the core that death will not have the last word. There will be resurrection. So we must know this as a reality not as a dream, but as a reality. Death has been nullified and life and incorruption have been brought to light. Verse 11, for which I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. Verse 12, for which cause I suffer these things. Paul presented himself to Timothy again as a pattern of suffering. Do you remember? what the Lord said to Ananias, the good Ananias, concerning Saul of Tarsus, I will show him what things he must suffer for the sake of my name. Okay, I am not, okay, I'm going to use this heavy word now, I am not being lugubrious. Lugubrious is that you're, it's to be solemn to an extreme. But we have to realize, especially those of us that were raised up in American affluence, Timothys have to be able to bear some amount of suffering. And my heart was very grieved several years ago when I was visiting Russia. And the brothers there, without any complaint, but with some amount of discouragement, uh, would just speak of, some young ones who came 
and just did not have the capacity to suffer any kind of deprivation. And then just had to return. There are various reasons for the saints to return. There's nothing wrong with returning. But to find out, I, I can be a Christian, I can be in the Lord's recovery as long as I'm in California. And then your parents say, I mean, that's right, don't go to the full-time training because we know what that can lead to. You may be in Romania and then I, I expect you to live two miles away from me and to build a treasure city for me in my retirement. And I, I'm being kind of merciless, I know. But what are we here for? Christ in the church in California? And it's just an understanding that I'm here for the Lord's recovery, but it's just a kind of assumption it's the Lord's recovery with a certain level of affluence. It's, it's, with, it's with my Lexus. It's with my perfect children going to Ivy League schools. It's, worth, it, it, it's just understood that we have the Lord's recovery, but we have it with this ideal combination of California. And you know, maybe you really feel at heart the, the Northern California is better than the South, and you're probably right. But when I was moving to Texas in 1985, uh, I asked an older, he happened to be a Chinese gentleman that I had met where we were exercising. And he was a very experienced person. And, and had literally had traveled throughout the world, any place worth visiting. I said, Mr. Wong, according to your experience, what is the best place in the world to live? And he thought about it, and then he mentioned this, he mentioned that. He said, considering everything, the best place in the world is Southern California, from which place I was about to move. Well, uh, I'm addressing here something very practical, because you may not know that you may have a built-in limitation that will determine how far you're able to go. I'm not saying, oh, you're destined to a life of suffering, one misery after another. You'll marry a miserable wretch for a husband, an ugly sister as a wife, but it will all work out for your transformation, but it's just going to be one misery after another. There'll be no joy, no happiness, no human satisfaction. Not, none of the above, but there is the element of suffering. The enemy doesn't like what we're doing. The world does not agree with us. The system of Christianity opposes us. What do you think would happen if there was in this country a religious state? An organized Christianity had political power. They would be blowing up our presses. The brothers would be in prison, and some of us would be dead. That's just the way it is. Thank the Lord for the Bill of Rights and for the USA for his recovery. But if, if there are not some young Timothys who are able to move to other parts of the world, how are we going to preach the gospel of the kingdom to the uttermost parts of the earth? If, if he just can't bear the thought of going to Hungary, I mean, do they have, do, do they have, uh, is Marie, do they have Marie Callender? <laughs> Will I be able to order 
Kalua cream cheese pie on the internet and have it sent to me in, in, in Budapest? I mean, do they have Baskin Robbins? You know, um, I mean, what, what, what kind of flat will I have? And ooh, and the weather, is, is it cold? Does it snow? I mean, can I take my, my poodle? Uh, <laughs> you know, all of these things. Well, Timothy's don't have to be heroes, but they have to be able to take a little wine, get on the plane with their stomach problems, and fly to far away places because Paul asked them to go. So this is very practical. Uh, it's very spiritual, very organic to become a Timothy with this kind of balanced spirit, unfeigned faith, and doing the will of God. But to do the will of God does inquire, require concrete action and going and coming and being left and all kinds of things. And okay, let's just say that you, you realize that you know, you want a general anesthetic when you get your teeth cleaned, okay? You, you're just, you don't do well with pain, with deprivation, um, to live in the yurts. Is that what they call them? I'm glad I'm not in one. I take that as sovereign of the Lord. <laughs> but it, it, it's good for the young to be there. I've had my time in those kinds of things. Well, you know, we should be able to spend a couple nights in a yurt for the kingdom of God. You know, if we, can't, if we can't do that, then I don't know, there'll be a built-in limit. Then the Lord will have to get, to use a kind of human expression, some tougher Timothys from another source. But we, we just come to the Lord and say, Lord, I, I, you know, I'm afraid and, you know, okay. The Lord, I need you to infuse yourself into me, to give me some capacity to bear with inconvenience, or else we can really stall the Lord's move because the American youth are spoiled and they can't take anything. And that would be a shame to us and a defeat to us. And, and uh, I know one, one dear brother, he, he had to come back, and I don't, there's no, there's no blame. There, there is no blame on anybody. But the wife's soul was, was too, too small to bear it. And he can't force his wife to, to live in an environment that she humanly can't take. So he has to experience this very deep frustration of his being and function. And he has to come back and he has to die for his wife. And he has to love her and hold nothing against her and not be a martyr, and not be a hero. But on, there may be many, many situations where the brother has this kind of heart and the sister doesn't. So I'm talking for the future when you have your first long dinner, you know, four, five, six hours, and now, now you're officially dating, you graduated from the training, you're free from item seven, now you can do this, you know. Then find out if you're burdened to serve the Lord, that's in your heart, then no matter what you feel about this person, you need to find out. Do you have the same aspiration? And if she says, yes, you're blessed. If she says, I don't, I love the Lord, I love his recovery, but I don't think I have the grace to do that. And then you just have an honest fellowship, you pray together, and you say, the Lord 
the Lord bless you, but I'm going in another direction. I thank the Lord for giving me a radical wife, a radical kingdom seeker wife, willing to pay the price for God's economy. Uh, for which cause I suffer these things, verse 12, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he is able to guard my deposit unto him, uh, unto that day. His deposit is, first Paul made the deposit. I put everything in your hands. You will guard my deposit. Then he tells Timothy, hold a pattern of healthy words that you have heard from me. Now, Timothy's get just about everything from Paul. Is that okay with you? Timothy doesn't basically sit there and get an open heaven and get direct revelation from God and then start writing epistles. Second Corinthians opens Paul and Timothy. That is really gracious of Paul and his writing in the principle of the body, but we know who got the revelation, who got it directly and who got it indirectly. And all that I share with anyone anywhere concerning God's economy, I received from someone. That's just the way it is. If I'm going to be an American pride and say I'm not taking anything from a man from China without a theological degree. What a shame. But that sadly, that racist pride has kept many Americans from humbly receiving the ministry of the age that happened to come through a person humanly of a different race and culture. Uh, but th that's just the Lord's economy. And we need to have such a heart and such a spirit to receive the Lord's supply from any human channel. Because most of it we're getting from the body. We're not get, getting directly from God. And I, I, I believe this strongly. And I, I, I've said this on a number of occasions. And just my human standing, being a white male in America, I feel I can say it. If the truths of the Lord's ministry had come from an Ivy League Anglo-Saxon male, it might have been widely received but because of the pride related to race and culture, many would not humble themselves to be perfected from another human source. That's why I thank the Lord for his mercy to so many of us. We don't care who the human channel is. We don't care what the vessel is. We only care for the real thing. In, in July 1966, I was studying Ephesians in the Greek. I was in chapter 3. I came to those verses about God's eternal purpose and his wisdom being made known to the church, to the principalities and powers. And I gasped in amazement over that verse, although I had read it before. I realized I had no idea what this meant. And a little prayer came out. Lord, the man who can show me what this means, I will follow that man. That was in July. In September, my wife and I are now in Oakland, fellowshipping with some saints in Berkeley, we met a brother who had just come into the church in San Francisco. He told us about the local churches and Brother Witness Lee. He gave me a stream magazine. In that stream magazine, the main article 
was an exposition of those verses from Ephesians chapter 3. There it was in the Stream magazine. I never met Brother Lee. I never heard him speak, but I realized this is the truth. This is the answer to my prayer. I can follow this person because this person knows God and knows God's economy. And so Paul told Timothy, hold the pattern of healthy words that you heard from me. So you're going to hear it from some me, right? You're going to hear it from some me. All the Timothys get it from somebody. They're not the pioneer. They're not the one with the ministry of the age. Their function is to coordinate with it and carry it out. In faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. A little comment here. Faith is for our receiving. And love is for our enjoying what we have received. The bride prepared for Christ must be a mature uh, corporate female. Uh, fully developed, and in particular, as symbolized in Song of Songs and elsewhere, by the breasts of the female, uh, the, the development must be of faith and love, these two things. We need to look to the Lord for a rich and full development of our faith and of our love. Uh, probably tomorrow morning we will see how critical is the matter of love eventually, whether you are a Timothy or not, will be determined by what you love. Love will be the determining factor. Demas loved the present age. Paul loved the Lord's appearing. And in 2 Timothy, there is much discussion about different kinds of lovers and certain non-lovers. And the degradation that caused Asia to turn from Paul began with the forsaking of the first love. So deep within, this is a matter of love. Whether or not we become a Timothy and are a faithful Timothy will be determined by what kind of love governs and directs our whole life. This is uh, not a small matter. So even the holding the pattern of faithful words, it's not just that you're bright, you pick up the points, you memorize the points, you come to the training, you have a stellar training, you do well on tests in the semi-annual trainings. That's all very good, but it's held in faith and love. If there isn't the faith, there isn't the love, then your kind of holding the words doesn't mean much. It's just a smart mind, able to grasp the points objectively, able to speak them clearly. But you don't impart anything of God when you hold them forth. But when there's the love and then there's the faith, then the words that you hold forth really mean something. Then in verse 14, Paul says, guard the good deposit through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Now we have a second deposit. This is the deposit that is in Timothy through the Holy Spirit. Something has been entrusted to Timothy. And if the Lord delays his coming and the co-workers of my generation have finished their course, then you have to realize 
the Lord's recovery will be entrusted to you. Who else is here? There's just you. What will you do with it? It's entrusted to you. We, we've given it to you. We've imparted it to you. It's wrought into your being. God himself, through his ministry, has entrusted the future of his recovery and even his consummation to you, Timothy's. That's just the way it is. Paul was leaving. He knew it. He said, Timothy, the deposit has been entrusted to you. It's stored up in your being. Guard it. Why would you say guard it if there isn't a peril in relation to it? Something can happen. You can be distracted. It can be, you can be deprived of it. It can be nullified. You have to guard the deposit. There's a fight here. There's a thief here. We have a deposit. What a deposit we have through Brother Lee's ministry. This word is very precious. Guard it. How do we guard it? Well, not, not by being fierce and antagonistic and combative, but through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. So first you've got to get the deposit. And I can't deny that you know, a way that hastens the accumulation of the deposit is the full-time training. There's no doubt about it, but I'm not limiting it to that. You, you get the deposit in the church life, you got to get it, then you got to guard it. I really mean it. Don't think that the future of the recovery rests upon us, this us being some brothers that are being blended. Maybe temporarily that's the situation. For the long run, it rests on you. And you're young. I know you're young, but you're not too young to be a Timothy with a deposit. And you're just faithful to it. And you hold forth a pattern of, of, of healthy words in faith and love. The Lord will have a way to go on. This need is so desperate. There is no words to convey the weight of this kind of, kind of burden. Verse 15 shows the unpleasant situation. This you know. Timothy had to face this. That all who are in Asia turned away from me. That's the general situation. It doesn't mean every single saint in Asia. But I don't want to go into any detail. But this is not a theory. Uh, there can be, and even in certain parts of the world, there is. It's a turning away. Turning away from the, the core of the ministry. Oh, the high peak. That's too high. It's too much. Let's go back to 12 baskets full. Let's go back to the simple things. Oh, the songs in the hymnal, they're, the new ones, they, they can't get them. They're, let, let's sing a lot of new little ditties and let's have actions and little dance routine and and, and what, what is this? Uh, we, we, we're not pessimists. We're not cynics. But people have the capacity to turn away. Don't be an idealist in the recovery. To have a vision is one thing. To be an idealist is something else. Read the New Testament. You cannot be an idealist. Look at Corinth. Look at the situation in Corinth. 
But Paul could say the church of God is at Corinth. You have immorality here. You have parties in the church. You have the abuse of gifts. You've got brothers suing brothers. You have sisters out of order in the meeting. You have saints getting drunk at the love feast leading to the Lord's table meeting. You've got saints saying there's no resurrection. You've got disorder in the meeting. You would say, what kind of church is that? This is not a church. I know all kinds of fundamental groups that are better than this. That's right. Paul says the church of God, which is at Corinth. Okay, our vision is true. Eventually, the, rea uh, the, the practicality will correspond to the vision, but not in the immediate future. On the human side, we got this conglomeration of human beings with all kinds of complexities, and we're meeting together of a theoretical church. Just as I don't love an abstract wife, the concept of wifeness, this platonic ideal. And I never lend any credence to those things. I don't believe there are any universals like that. I love an actual practical wife named Susan. If I don't love an actual practical wife named Susan, then I don't love any wife. I have one wife, her name is Susan, and I love her. That is the one the Bible tells me to love. And there's no perfect female sister, not even for you. You will not be the exception. There's just a sinners here that are in the process of being saved organically by life. And our imperfections tend to show up in our relationships. And so we are not cynics who don't believe there isn't love, there isn't marriage. We do. But we love actual persons. Okay? So the church life, in its human side, is not an ideal society. If you are on a quest for the ideal church, you've come to the wrong place. But if you want the authentic church, the actual church, welcome home. But the authentic church is a typical church, and you just read the New Testament, and it was not utopia. So stuff happens, okay? It happens. All kinds of things have happened. You read the Old Testament, Israel is a type of us. All kinds of things happen. And so all kinds of things have happened, and some people are blown away by them. This can't be the church. Then how can this be the church? There, there isn't love. There is this problem. Well, you don't know the church. You don't know the truth. You don't know the New Testament. On the human side, we have to realize all kinds of things have, do, and will happen, including Asia turning away from Paul, one of those who took the lead in the three-self movement to persecute the brothers unto death was a former elder of one of the local churches in mainland China. We do not know what people will do under duress or when they're tempted. Yet I don't live in fear and I don't live in suspicion. I'm not looking backwards. Who's, who's going to betray me? Who's going to turn away from me? No! I like to live in simplicity and in purity and trusting the saints, but neither are we shocked that they turned away from me. It happens. 
It doesn't mean it's not the recovery anymore. It means that we're fighting a battle and it's a complex situation and there may be departure. Timothy has to know this. He does know this. And he's standing with Paul in the midst of this degraded situation and he is standing as an overcomer and he's going to continue the line of Paul's ministry until the end of his own life. That's a Timothy. I don't want to present an ideal, rosy picture of being a Timothy. We are in for one fierce fight. In a few minutes, we can, we'll see the metaphors that Paul uses in relation to Timothy. One of them is a soldier. Maybe, as one of the messages on the Thanksgiving conference will point out again, the spiritual scene behind the world situation. We have to know there is a spiritual enemy and he's evil and he has a host and he has an army and he hates us and wants to kill us and destroy us. And when this evil enemy uses human beings, there's all kinds of havoc and chaos in the world and in the church. This is the way it is and Timothy has to understand that this is the real church. Wherever Paul sent him, it's the real church, but it's not perfect, and we're in a fight. And a lot of people may turn tail and run, but we'll see in chapter 2 uh, tonight, the Lord willing. There is this degradation, but the firm foundation of God stands, and there is a company of those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart, there is an overcoming core in the midst of the degraded situation and Timothy is to stand for that and not be afraid and not let anyone despise his youth. And we can't go into all the details of Paul's charge to Timothy. You have to rebuke some, you have to teach, you have to preach, you have to patiently bring this one back to the truth. Timothy was not left in an easy situation. And there were times, and please don't misunderstand the, the expression that I'm using, when Brother Lee was taken by the Lord, that we were just disoriented. I, I, I felt I was saying in my heart to him, Brother Lee, you left us in a hard situation. What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to have the trainings? What are we supposed to talk about? What do we minister on at the semi-annual training? What do we do on Wednesday night? You just went away and you didn't outwardly, apparently, make any arrangement. Well, that's the way it is and that's the way it may be. What are you going to do? Just cower in fear, shrink back, go home? retire to your villa outside of Rome? Someone's got to go on. You're not Paul, but you're Timothy. And you can do it. But we have to become the person who is able to faithfully carry on. But Timothy is not all alone. Verse 16 says, May the Lord grant mercy to the house of Anesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain, 
but being in Rome, he sought me out diligently and found me. How about this? He refreshed Paul. You think Paul doesn't need to be refreshed? You think an apostle like Paul is so powerful in the spirit, he doesn't need his spirit to be refreshed, he doesn't need to be ministered to? In Romans 16, Paul is greeting the brothers, and he mentions one, and then he mentions his mother and mine, and mine. Paul needed a mother. You think I don't need a mother? Sister Albrecht, Clara Albrecht, went to the Lord in 1981. When she went, I was grief-stricken. I lost my mother. How the Lord's recovery needs, needs mothers. I'm so glad we have Sister Lee to be our mother. On the day that Brother Lee went to the Lord, a number of us met with her in her home. And we fellowship with her. It was so precious. We told her that, Sister Lee, we will take care of you your whole life. We'll take care of your living. We'll take care of you. You are our mother. Oh, how sweet this is. Well, here is a brother. You know, it's strange. The mighty ones, the gifted ones, Eventually, they don't stay. And the ones we never thought were anything or who could do anything, they're still here. Like Onesiphorus, what was he? Was he an apostle? Did he write? He didn't write the New Testament. Was he an elder? But not only him, but his house. His whole house would receive mercy because he often refreshed Paul and was not ashamed of his chain. But being in Rome, he sought me out diligently and found me. How do you find a prisoner in Rome? I don't know the logistics of the situation. I think you have to talk to people. You identify yourself with this prisoner. And who is the emperor? Nero? Not a good guy, right? You want to go there in that big city and identify yourself with the imprisoned apostle? And humanly speaking, that takes guts. That takes some kind of spiritual fortitude. You are not ashamed. You know this brother needs human contact. You know he needs fellowship. And you are going to find him. Not just seek him out diligently. That's very good. Luke 15, however, says the shepherd sought until he found the sheep. And the woman looked until she found the coin. And Onesiphorus sought out Paul until he found him. Not a small thing. And the, Paul said, May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord in that day. What is that day? That's the day of judgment. And it's, there'll be a judgment according to righteousness. But the Bible says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. He shall be judged without mercy, who has shown no mercy. But mercy rejoices against judgment. One thing uh, I'm pretty, uh, I know, on that day, I will need mercy. If I'm judged according to strict righteousness, I don't see how I could ever survive. If the Lord, in my, the course of my life on the earth, especially in the recovery, if he dealt with me according to strict righteousness, I would be dead. 
I mean it. I would be dead. I would not be here standing in front of you. But there is such a thing as mercy. And Paul prayed for mercy to be on the house of Onesiphorus and that he would have mercy on that day. And then look at the rest of verse 18. And in how many things he served me in Ephesus, you know best. It's not a small thing to have this kind of coordination. Oh, I'm not Paul. I'm not even Timothy. What can I do? I'm just a Nesiphorus. But you... Huh, he's an overcomer. This is an overcomer. Oh, some of the mighty ones, the gifted ones, the able ones, they take the lead to rebel. It's always that kind of person that takes the lead to cause the big problems. The little everyday problems in the church that are caused mainly by sisters. Yeah. The run-of-the-mill problems in the church are caused more by sisters than brothers. The major monumental problems are caused by the big brothers. Korah, right? The princes. That's just the way it is. And then little Onesiphorus comes up and stands steadfast. No great gift. No big position. Nothing. He's just here, faithful to the end, as an overcomer. How about that? So Paul can point Timothy to a family. There's a Nesiphorus. You're not alone. Then we go on. Chapter 2. We actually are in the second chapter. <laughs> you therefore, my child, be empowered in the grace which is in Christ Jesus. Uh, I don't want to say too much here, but I want to just point out something very simple. Uh, we need to enjoy the Lord. And this enjoyment empowers us. That's the grace. I don't want to give you a, a very complex definition of grace. Grace is God for our enjoyment and is our supply. And that empowers us. I believe you already know this. When you receive grace and you enjoy the Lord as grace, you're empowered. Now, now you have the faith again. Your heart is back again you know that you can prevail. We need to enjoy the Lord. To be an, a Timothy, we need lots of grace. We need lots of enjoyment. We'll see. The last word Paul wrote was grace be with you. Grace be with you. That's the last thing he said, Timothy. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. That's how the Bible ends. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all the saints. Well, you may not have thought of it, but you need to enjoy the Lord and you can enjoy the Lord. Now, there are some dispositions. Maybe there aren't very many, but some of us, you know, maybe our ancestry goes way, way to the north, to the dark country, and we're just solemn and serious and morbid or whatever it is. And in, in, in our universe, there, there's no joy. There's no happiness. That's where the shallow people from the south or wherever they are, of the deep thinking people, you know, one sign of their depth is their misery. 
like Goethe apparently said, he only knew three days of happiness in his whole life. And, and, and you, if you study culture, I, I don't want to get into the secular things, but some of the literature that comes from the European North and the artwork, it's not what you would call uh, joy-inspiring. And some people, by disposition, and, and I had one of those, sorry to say, but that's the way my, my fallen uh, nature was formed. When I was your age, uh, happiness was not an option for me. To me, it was just, it's just not an option. That's, that's for idiots. <laughs> I mean, if, you, if you have any realization what, what human life is, you're not going to even expect happiness. Uh, and love that's as long as someone doesn't know you. As soon as they know you, love disappears. And so, personally, I just settle for respect. Then how about, there'll be a distance. It'll be kind of cold. But at least there'll be respect. What kind of life is that? But now, I'll tell you, I'm a lot happier at 62 than I was at 26. I can be happy in the Lord and enjoy the Lord. And he is grace and every day I ask for today's portion of grace. Hudson Taylor testified that he received so many letters and reports of the suffering of the missionaries under his care. And one day he was singing his favorite hymn. Lord, thou hast made thyself to me a living, bright reality. And someone was asking him, why are you happy when you're hearing so many distressing reports? And he said something like this. Would, would it help them if I didn't have any joy? What the churches need is they need Timothys that enjoy the Lord. This means a lot. I'll just tell you uh, just a little story from my, from my childhood. You know, I'm not getting psychological on me or on you, but it illustrates the point that my mother, in those days, and I was eight or ten or would iron all the clothes. And when she was ironing, especially when my father was at work at night, she would just be singing. She had a lovely voice. And she would just sing songs from the 40s that you may not even recognize. As, they may not be considered music today. you know. But she, she would just sing without any self-consciousness just singing out loud with a lovely voice. And I remember being so comforted and feeling so secure because my mother was happy. And one day, something dawned on me and it frightened me. And I had this realization. The singing has stopped. The singing stopped. And I realized this means 
something's wrong with mommy. Mommy isn't happy. And I lost that security. And I have to say humanly, the singing never came back. It's not a small thing to sing with joy, to sing with grace in our hearts to the Lord. I would remind you of Acts 16. Paul and Silas were beaten, put in the stocks. They could have gotten into their disposition and say, well, I guess this is how it ends up. Huh? We had hopes for this apostolic business. And we came to Philippi. And we thought we were directed here. And, oh, man, I'm just it's, just... it's just over pitiful. Yeah, Paul, I feel the same way. Instead, they're singing there. But this is not yet my point. They're singing and praising the Lord. And do you remember one of the following verses says, and the prisoners were listening to them. Sometimes I said, half kiddingly, I said, Dick, if I'm ever imprisoned, I hope I have you for a cellmate. <laughs> I hope I have you for a cellmate. You know. Well, this is the empowering grace. Oh, oh we shouldn't pass by this. If you want to become a Timothy, you not only need to be you know, balanced in your being by having the Spirit penetrate all of this and not only be able to suffer and, and guard the deposit, you need, I speak in human terms, to be happy in the Lord. The church needs this. Oh my, if the elders are happy, if the co-workers are happy. I see Sister Lee every time she has genuine joy in the Lord. One Lord's Day night, I was down. You know, I get down, you know, just like you. And, um, and I just was just out of sorts. So I was doing something mundane like bringing the, the trash barrels to the curb. And we had three of them. So you just wheel them out. And then, about 20 feet away, Sister Lee was there with a young sister. And she greeted me so warmly and was laughing. And spontaneously, I just walked up to her and greeted her. Uh, I, I can't describe to you what her joy did to my spirit. That here is a sister happy in the Lord. Surely her life is not free from suffering, but her joy strengthened me. Let's suppose, you know, I'm out of it, the young sister's out of it, Sister Lee's out of it. I see her, she says, vanity of vanities. <laughs> All is vanity, says the prophet. <laughs> oh, I think I would have been actually shaken. More or less, I have to say more or less, I... I kind of expect my spiritual mother to have joy in the Lord. If you don't have joy, how can a son like me have any hope? But this doesn't mean we walk around with a smiley face pretending to be happy. We need grace. All right. Uh, 
I want to just share another seven minutes or so, so we'll see how far we go. And the things which you have heard from me through many witnesses, these commit to faithful men who will be competent to teach others also. So the Timothy not only continues the line, he has to perpetuate the line. It's not as if I'm Timothy, I'm it, I carry on. Well, the apostles didn't know this would have to be carried on for about 20 centuries. But they didn't envision this amount of time. So what you've heard from me, you need to commit. Don't be afraid to commit. Don't be suspicious of the young saints. Trust them. Commit the things to them. But it's not without discernment. It doesn't say commit to brilliant ones, does it? Commit to eloquent ones. Commit to powerful ones. But to faithful. Faithful. Uh, some saints are faithful. And some are not faithful. And Timothy has a criterion. I'm not looking for great ability. But for someone who is faithful. And then, okay, Paul gives it to Timothy. Timothy gives it to the faithful ones and they have to teach others also. Then we have a future. Then the co-workers can rest in hope. Not bothered by the degradation. Even not bothered by the turning away. But heartened by the fact there is a line. There's a line of Timothy's that in the midst of this perilous situation, they're carrying on. They're not for themselves. It won't stop with them. They will commit this to others, and those others will teach others also. Then the flow will continue. Eventually, there will be some standing at the end, and the Lord will come. But we don't know when that will be. Then he says in verse 3, Suffer evil with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please the one who enlisted him. Uh, a few things here. I'll just mention I may pick it up again tonight. Uh, we'll see. T uh, Timothy is a soldier. And... Uh, Probably we're going to see a recycle of the 60s, make love, not war, peace. Peace without principle, peace without justice. We just want peace. Um, but the fact is, we're at war. There's a spiritual war, and we're soldiers. And, you, and this may not appeal to you. No, some of us were born to fight. The sisters may not understand why boys and young men, you know, like some of this aggressive stuff, well, it's just, it's not only our fallen nature. We were made for combat. So were you. But for the right kind of elevated combat with the enemy. And so we need to be a good soldier, but there's a, there's a criterion. No one in serving as a soldier entangles himself with the affairs of this life. Oh, okay. Do you realize that your Timothy function can be very much compromised 
by getting entangled with the affairs of this life, and that is the bios, right? The physical life. Let me give you an illustration as I'm winding up this segment. Can you rule over one of these? This, is, this, is, this happens to be my uh, Delta Sky Miles American Express card. Or are you entangled by it? Even now in your youth, are you in the process of getting entangled with the affairs of this life? We do not escape the affairs of this life. How can we not pay rent? Even in Berkeley, with rent control, you have to pay some amount of rent, right? But we may not realize it. the enemy may neutralize so many of us while we get entangled with the affairs of this life, especially with debt. I wonder, what do you think would happen to the economy of the United States if Americans simply stopped going into debt? Do you realize there would be a crash? The economy is to a large extent built upon debt and spending beyond your means and companies sending out credit cards to to young people. Okay, I'm not going to press this to the point that it's painful and I ruin your afternoon. <laughs> but, but I want to make a practical point. My being is free and unentangled because I have no debt. And so far as it rests with me, I'll never be in debt again. I have credit cards for convenience and I clear them every month. It wasn't always this way. I had to learn the hard way like I learn everything else. But if I'm entangled, I can't fight. I can't fight. And so we, even, even in, in, in married life, in, in family life, we have to learn not to be entangled. Uh, I have a daughter and two sons. They range from 27 to 33 in age. And I learned that you know, parenting never ends. They're 20-somethings, 30-somethings. But a certain thing happened here and a certain thing happened there which touched me very deeply. I wondered, why does this have to happen? I realized, ooh, I still have lots of natural entanglement. I need to be disentangled, you believe me, from my daughter, from my son, from my other son. And the other son is, is in Colorado now. He sent me an email with some pictures entitled How I Spend My Weekends. And the best picture is on the top of this 14,000-foot mountain. That's how he climbs up there and he's, he's doing this and that. And I love him. He's my brother. He's your brother. But I can't be entangled not entangled with my marriage, not entangled with my family, not entangled with health. Yes, to take care of my health, but to be entangled by it. Oh, <coughs> I didn't get my exercise walk this morning. How can I live? I didn't get to do my exercise routine with the weights. How can I go on? Oh, I have to, I'm eating different kinds of food. I'm in the south of the Philippines. I'm getting fish lip soup. <laughs> rice all day long and and mangoes and this and that. Oh, well, isn't there a place just to eat what's said in front of you, not be entangled? Timothy's can live a human life 
without being entangled. Now, you may have lots of faith, and you may enjoy the Lord, and you may be the most balanced person in your tripartite being, but the enemy got you entangled. I appreciate a word Benson, Phillip, Benson Phillips gave a couple years ago to middle-aged saints in relation to the move to Europe. He said, how about you take five years to get yourself untangled? Wouldn't this be wonderful? This is very realistic. It's not condemning. But you get unentangled. How about, this seems to be not so spiritual, but we're ending on this not so spiritual point this morning. How about you be willing now in your youth to learn how not to be entangled with the affairs of this life? Now, you can't just drop out like they did in the 60s and be supported by the very system that you are fighting against. No, we need to be responsible. We need to take care of the affairs of this life without being entangled. And why do you not want to be entangled? It's because you realize you're at war. And a lot of those troops that are in Afghanistan, I read an article about the Screaming Eagles from the 101st Airborne Special Forces Division. And the one wife, of one of those sent. She was very exercised to control her feeling because she knows her husband has to go. For so many years, they could be at the base. He would just go to training missions in Uzbekistan, then come home. But they have to realize it's for real now. And the men and women who are going have to be unentangled. You can't say, sorry, you're calling me up, you're sending me there. What about my, you know, my visa bill? What about my, my kids' orthodontist thing? What about my car payment? Uh, I'm redecorating the house. I can't go. There can be no such thing. When we're at war, and we are, we have to be ready. Among the many things Timothy's are is their soldiers among the many things Timothy's do is they fight. And in order to fight, they have to live a human life that's not entangled. And this is a great need, especially throughout the developed countries. If you're in the south of the Philippines, it might be different. You're forced to be simple. But to grow up in an entangled society especially with the finances, uh, the enemy can use this to just snare you. And you may have the heart to move, you may have the burden to move, but you're stuck. And it's very important that we learn another way of living with the kingdom of God in view. We're very normal, we're very practical. We don't practice asceticism. I can take my family on a vacation. Right? We can do all kinds of human things. We live in a house. The kids got their education. We take care of their health. But our testimony is we're not entangled with the affairs of this life. This is crucial. 
Then we just go along, and then we're called up. We go. And we can fight for God's interests. Well, how about uh, I, I stop here. We have maybe seven minutes. Anybody want to share something? I'd really like to hear from you. I appreciated your responses. So. I have a lot in me to share. And I hope you can have the grace to let me share at least much of what is in me. But still, it matters that you also share what's in you. So, uh, how about it? Will someone give us a little word?